Acts chapter 5, actually beginning in the last verses of, of chapter 4, but our, our focus this morning is Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And you'll remember that in the last paragraph of chapter 4, uh, we saw that uh, the, the oneness in heart and soul that the church enjoyed because they were all devoted to Jesus as their king and, and devoted to his kingdom. We, we saw that that oneness expressed itself in economic generosity. It, it expressed itself in, in the sharing of all things. We're, we're told that no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own or were only for his own benefit, but instead... They shared everything in common. Everyone used everything they had for the good of all. Some, those who were uh, owners of lands or of houses, even sold their assets and gave the money to the apostles for the relief of the poor among them. And the result of this, Luke tells us, is that there was not a needy person among them, that all of the needs were, were being met. And as we noted last Sunday, that is a a beautiful picture of what community ought to look like. That is a a beautiful picture of true Christian fellowship, of what we often refer to as the communion of the saints. It's It's a picture at which we just sit back and marvel. Well, the picture set before us this morning is of a rather different sort. The picture set before us here in the first verses of, of, chapters, of chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, is, is a much darker picture. The story of Ananias and Sapphira, it's, it's familiar to us because it's the kind of story that's actually hard to forget. Once you've heard it, you can't really not remember it. It's, it's hard to forget a story of a husband and, and wife both falling dead at church three hours apart because they lied about their offering. It's not the sort of story you forget. In fact, one commentator says this story must be ranked among the most difficult for modern readers in the book of Acts. This is is one of the places in the book of Acts where where we are caught up short because we're not quite sure what to do with a story like this. And so this morning, in order to to help us understand what's going on here, in order to help us understand and to to make sense of this story and to help us hear what it is that that Luke wants us to hear, I I want to do two things this morning. First, I, I want to look at the sin itself. What is actually going on here? I want us to make sure that we we see the details correctly. I want us to see the nature of Ananias and Sapphira's sin. I I want us to see the motive of their sin. And I want us to consider carefully the consequence of their sin. And then, having looked at the sin, I want us to look more closely at exactly how it is that Luke wants us to respond. What is the, the response that Luke is trying to elicit from his readers? Why does he tell us this story? So let's begin with the sin itself, beginning with the the nature of the sin. And we we see this at the end of verse 5. Look with me again at what Peter says. Peter, speaking to Ananias, says, Why is it that you contrive this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And so it's it's basic. What, What Ananias and Sapphira have done is that they have lied to God. They have misrepresented themselves in God's 
presence. And how had they done that? Well, we're, we're told that they had sold a piece of property. They were amongst the landowners. That means they were amongst the, the more well-off in the congregation. And they had taken one of their assets and they had sold it. And they had set apart part of the money for themselves. And then they had brought the rest and placed it at the apostles' feet. But that was not their sin. The, the sin was not simply that they had kept part of the money for themselves. Rather, we're, we're told that the sin was that they claimed to be bringing the full purchase price and setting it at the apostles' feet when, in fact, they were only bringing apart. We, we know this from what Peter says to Ananias in verses 3 and, and 4. He, uh, Peter says to Ananias that Satan has filled your heart to lie to God, to lie to the Holy Spirit, to, to misrepresent yourself before God and his church. He, he then says explicitly, listen, while the field was unsold... It was yours to do with as you pleased. It was your property. It was your possession. It was at your disposal. And even after it was sold, the money was at your disposal. The, the money was yours to distribute as you saw fit. You were under no obligation to, to bring all of the proceeds and, and lay them at the apostles' feet. We, we talked about that last Sunday. And so the sin was not that they kept part of the money for themselves. That was within their rights. The sin was lying about it. The sin was, was claiming to give it all when in fact they only gave a part. And we know that Sapphira was in on it, not only because Luke tells us in verse 1 that, that Ananias did this with his wife's full knowledge, but, but we also know it because she keeps up the ruse later when, when she is confronted by Peter. We see this in verses 7 through 9. Look again. At those verses, she comes in three hours after her husband's uh, death and, and burial. We, we're not quite exactly sure of the details. We're not quite sure why they weren't there at the, the same time. But, but she didn't know what had happened to her husband. And so Peter says to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she says, yes, for so much. That was the, the purchase price. And she continues the lie. And so we, we see that it was that lie that was at the very heart of their sin. It was that lie that brought down God's judgment. But before we look at the, the judgment, we, we first must understand the motive. Why is it that they did this? What was motivating them to lie to God? And we must admit that Luke doesn't tell us explicitly what their motive is. That's sort of the way that, that narratives in the scriptures work. Very seldom are we, are we told explicitly of a, of a character's motives. Rather, we're given clues in the text that we might discern what it is that is going on in their heart. And here, the clue is the but at the beginning of verse 1. Look again at the way Luke phrases it. He says, but a man named Ananias. That but refers us back to the verses that Sam read, verses 36 and 37. Because it contrasts the, the actions of Ananias and Sapphira with those of Joseph, this man better known to us as Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And what are we told about Barnabas? Well, first, we're told that he also sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So he had actually done what Ananias and Sapphira were pretending to do. But we're also told this interesting tidbit that this man named Joseph was called Barnabas by the apostles. He had been given a nickname, a second name. 
A name that, that had significance. A name that, that represented his character. And that name was Barnabas. He was known amongst the apostles and amongst the early Christians as the son of encouragement. He was the one who was always coming alongside, building up, strengthening his fellow believers. And so the apostles honored him with this name. He is to be called Barnabas. And it is the juxtaposition of these two stories, the, the story of Barnabas and then the story of Ananias and Sapphira, that, that suggests to us that Ananias and Sapphira were trying to buy for themselves a reputation like Joseph had. They, too, wanted to be known as encouragers. They, too, wanted to be revered amongst the apostles and the, the believers. And so we see that in their hearts, devotion to the Lord... That, that devotion that had united all the believers together in one heart and one soul, that devotion had been replaced. That devotion to the Lord had been replaced by a devotion to something else. The fear of man and the desire for man's praise had replaced the fear of the Lord and the desire to please Him. They were more interested in earning a reputation amongst their fellow believers than they were in actually serving their fellow believers. And because their reputation, because their desire, their devotion was this, this self-focused grasping, we understand that, that what they were doing was really lying to God. They were presenting themselves as these fully devoted disciples, united in heart and soul with their fellow believers, when actually... All they were after was a reputation. They wanted to be known as generous. They wanted to be known as encouragers. They, they wanted to be known as those who served the body sacrificially without actually having to make any sacrifices. That's what's going on in their hearts. That is their motive. But we're still left to ask, why, why is this such a big deal? Sure, it's wrong. <laughs> Sure, it's wrong to, to try to play to the crowd. Sure, it's wrong to try to gain for yourself a, a reputation. But is it really a capital offense? Did it really, was it really worthy of their, their immediate execution? Is that really what's going on here? If, if, if playing to the crowd and trying to earn the praise of men is a capital offense, then, then a lot of us are in trouble. But I think we can begin to see the seriousness of this offense when we, when we recognize that, that this concern for the praise of men is a concern for externals, for external displays. They, they were concerned about their reputation rather than their relationship with God. And this has to remind us of the Old Testament people who, who were condemned by the prophets for what? For honoring God with their lips while their hearts remained far from him. They, they were going through the motions of worship. They were putting on a performance. They were displaying the externals, but their hearts weren't in it. And we need to see that the seriousness of such sin cannot be overstated. It cannot be overstated, the, the seriousness of, of pretending in God's presence, because we have to remember the reality 
of our relationship to Him. What do the Scriptures say? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none who is righteous before Him. All have, have sinned. And the consequence of that sin is that all are under wrath. Think of Paul's language in, in Ephesians when he, when he says that you used to be dead in your trespasses and sins and you were an object of wrath like the rest of mankind. All of mankind, apart from Christ, all of mankind in Adam, all of mankind is under wrath, is justly condemned. That is the reality. That is our, our default stance before God, is as a condemned sinner. However, what have we heard even this morning? God so loved the world. Even in its sin, even in its rebellion, God so loved the world that he gave his Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That is the, the heartbeat of the gospel. God's love for sinners, God's pursuing love for sinners, God's reconciling love for sinners. God, seeing sinners, sets his affection on them and goes after them. He, he, he gives his son as the sacrifice for their sins that those who are justly condemned might instead be blessed, that those who are far off might be brought near, that those who are enemies and alienated might be reconciled to their heavenly Father and restored to life in his kingdom. That's the gospel. That's the, the heart of what we believe. It's the good news that we, we gather to celebrate every Sunday. But, but remember what else Jesus said to Nicodemus. When Jesus, when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus, when Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever uh, believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, he went on to say, and whoever does not believe is condemned already. Whoever does not believe remains under sin. You see, as Sam was pointing out in the children's sermon, it's not enough to pretend to be in the ark. If, if, if Noah had gone behind the ark and hid and pretended that he was in so that everybody thought that he was in, it would have done him no good when the floods came. And in the same way, it is not enough to attach ourselves to God externally. It is not enough to pretend to be a believer. It is not enough to, to play the part. You must actually believe. You must actually entrust yourself to him. You must actually receive and rest upon Jesus Christ as he is offered to you in the gospel. You must actually be of one heart and one soul with the full company of those who believe. You must be devoted to the Lord for feigning devotion, pretending devotion, pretending to be one of His is not enough. If you are merely pretending, then you are condemned already. If you are merely pretending, then you remain under wrath. And therefore, it is a deadly serious thing to pretend to believe. It is a deadly, serious thing to, to merely go through the motions of faith. It is serious because it is actually, in reality, literally, a matter of life and death. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are under wrath. And there is no salvation in pretending. 
It is only those who believe who shall not perish. And seeing this helps us to make sense of the the severe judgment that both Ananias and Sapphira incur here in this story. As you know, each of them were put to death by God. Not by Peter. Peter is merely God's instrument here. They They were put to death by God. This is divine judgment. God acts immediately to execute his his judgment against Ananias and Sapphira. And this this troubles us for at least two reasons. It it troubles us first because it it strikes us as too severe. As I said earlier, we we struggle to see this as a capital offense. The, The punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime from our perspective. But if that is your initial gut reaction to this story, then I want to suggest to you this morning that that you are missing the point. You're not seeing the truth of what is actually going on here. Because as I said, pretending to believe is in fact a deadly mistake. It is a deadly mistake because it leaves you under a sentence of death. You see, we must see that that the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira are simply the immediate execution of the sentence that all people will one day face. Do you understand that? Do you understand that what happens to Ananias and Sapphira is is not unique? It It is merely sped up. It is the immediate execution of what we will all one day face apart from Christ. All of us are under a sentence of death. And pretending to be a believer, honoring God with your lips, mouthing the words of of faith, is not enough to escape that judgment. If our hearts remain far off, if our hearts are not engaged, then we remain separate from Christ and separate from the salvation that is found only in Him. We remain, as as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, apart from God and without hope in this world. You see, it is no small thing to pretend because pretending is the most dangerous game we can play when it comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Secondly, we must see that not only is is the punishment not too severe, but neither is it too immediate. That's what troubles us about this. Not only is the punishment severe, but the punishment is is immediate. And we wonder, well, well, why weren't they given a chance to repent? Didn't God act a bit rashly? Wasn't it a bit too quick to execute the, the judgment? But here again, we must train ourselves to see with different eyes. We must must train ourselves to recognize, firstly, that the the opportunity to repent is in itself a gift. In the United States today, we, we tend to believe that everybody deserves a second chance. That's a lie. Maybe in human relations, we we ought to be gracious with one another. We ought to be slow to anger with one another. We ought to to give each other a second chance because we need a second chance. It's an expression of a sinner's love for their neighbor as themselves is to be patient with one another. But the holy God of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, he does not owe you anything. He is in no way obligated. He is in no way in your debt. He in no way owes you a second chance. 
The opportunity to repent is itself a gift. And not only is it a gift, not only do we have to recognize that we're not owed it, but we have to recognize that even though we're not owed it, we've been given it. If you've been breathing, you are a recipient of this gift. If you are alive this morning, you are a recipient of this gift. Your next breath is this gift, the, the gift of the opportunity to repent. We've all been given this opportunity. It's, it's true of, of even those who are outside the church. Paul tells us in, in Romans chapter 1 that they too are without excuse for they know God. They, they see God's character and His power in the, the created things and in the unfolding of history. But even though they know God, Paul says, they do not acknowledge God as God. Therefore, they are without excuse. But our focus this morning is not on those who have not heard, those who have only seen the, uh, the, the creation. Ananias and Sapphira knew better. They had heard the good news. They, they were part of the community. They had heard the, the apostles' teaching. That's why they were trying to gain a reputation amongst this people. And so we need to understand that if you have heard the gospel that you have been given the opportunity to repent. It's why the author of Hebrews says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. Do not hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do not hear the offer of salvation in his name and then turn aside and think, I'll come back to that later. Ananias and Sapphira had heard the gospel. They had been given the opportunity to repent, and yet they feared men more than God. They were more concerned with their immediate reputation than they were with their eternal relationship with their heavenly Father. And that is why their deaths are a warning to everyone. It is why their, their deaths are, are recorded here at the, the very beginning. Even as Achan's sin was recorded at the beginning of the, the people's time in the land as a warning that faking devotion to God was a, a deadly error, so Ananias and Sapphira's sin is recorded here at the beginning of the life of the church as a warning that, that to fake a relationship with God, to fake being a part of the people, to, to pretend devotion is a deadly error. And their deaths are a stark reminder but today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today, if you hear his voice, respond in faith. Do not put it off. Do not wait. For there is no guarantee that he will ever call again. We must remember that for any of us, this might be the day. This might be even the moment when we are called to account before the Lord. None of us is owed or guaranteed our next breath. And so if you are walking in unbelief, whether that be openly acknowledging that you are not a believer or whether that be secretly, as a member of the church, pretending to be one of His, but knowing that in your heart you have not received and rested upon the Lord, knowing that you are devoted to other things, if you are walking in unbelief, you need to know that you are walking in grave danger. You are walking under a sentence of death that may be executed at any time. For God will call all of us to account, and He will call all of us to account in His time, at His discretion, according to His will. 
And when he calls us to account, we will face the judgment. And so, when we see things from a biblical perspective, we begin to, to recognize that the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira were neither too severe nor too immediate. We only see it that way because we don't truly understand the, the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. In his famous sermon, some, some might say infamous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, Jonathan Edwards used the, the image of a spider dangling by a, a thread over the open flames of a roaring fire. And he used that image to depict to his congregation the condition of unrepentant sinners, to, to, to depict to them the, the danger that they were in. Such fire and brimstone preaching is, is held and condemned by most people today. It's even held and condemned by most Christians today. But what we have to understand is that, that Edwards used that image because he loved his people. He was motivated by his love. In his day, every member of the town was a member of the church. And so he knew that, that, that there were members of his church who were just pretending. He knew that there were members of his church who were just going through the motions because that's what they needed to do to, to live a good life in that city. But Edwards also knew that those who were going through the motions were in grave danger. He knew that those who were going through the motions were lying to God. And therefore they were still under condemnation. To be a nominal Christian, to be a name-only Christian, to be a Christian who is merely going through the motions is to remain under a sentence of death. Edwards knew that. And he wanted the members of his church to know it as well. He, he wanted them to know the grave danger they were in because of their hypocrisy. And Luke's motivation here is the same. You can imagine someone in the community wanting to be a part of this body because, after all, no need went unmet. And Luke is warning the congregation at the very beginning, saying, listen, attaching yourself to the congregation, pretending to be devoted to Jesus is not enough. In fact, it is the most dangerous game you can play. Because there is no salvation in confessing Christ with your lips while your heart remains far from Him. There is no safety in playing a part. You may fool the, the apostles, you may fool the, the members of the congregation, but you cannot fool God. That's what Luke wants us to see. That's what he wants us to understand this morning. And it's what we need to understand. But once we see it, once we see the, the grave danger of hypocrisy, once we see the, the grave danger of pretending, of lying to God, how is it that we are to respond? Well, again, Luke shows us. He actually shows us twice. First in verse 5, we're told when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. We see the same thing again in, in verse 11. After the death of Sapphira, we're told, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. 
How is it that Luke thinks we ought to respond? What is the the response that he is seeking to elicit from his readers? It is clearly the, the response of fear. Fear is the proper response to the death of Ananias and Sapphira. Now we, now we struggle with that because we struggle to understand what this fear is. So what is this fear that Luke wants us to experience? Well, I've often uh, compared the, a proper fear of the Lord to, to something like the fear that an electrician has of electricity or something like the, the fear that a roofer has of heights. If, a, if an electrician doesn't fear electricity, he's in real trouble. He can't have a phobia of it. He can't have an irrational fear of it or he won't be able to do his job. But he must respect it. He must have enough respect for electricity that that motivates him and compels him to handle it properly. It's the same with the roofer. A roofer must have a fear of heights. He, He can't have a phobia. He can't have an irrational fear that paralyzes him. But if he doesn't respect gravity, his day is not going to end well. And so in the same way, we are to have a rational fear of the Lord. Not not an irrational phobia that that paralyzes us, but a holy, rational respect for the Lord that compels us to proper action. And so what is that holy, rational respect of the Lord? What is that awe of God as God? What is it that we are supposed to, to feel? I think we can say that the fear of the Lord consists of at least three parts. And we'll go through these quickly. First, a proper fear of the Lord begins with an acknowledgement that He is your rightful judge. That you are His and you are accountable to Him. He called the world into existence. He created all things by the word of His power. He made you. You are His. And therefore, you are accountable to Him for the life that He has given to you. And the day is coming when he will call you to account. This life is not forever. We don't talk about it as often as we should, but you are going to die one day. We don't know when. It could be today. It could be 50 years from now. But unless Christ returns, you will die. This life is not forever. And after that death comes judgment. It is appointed to man to die once, then the judgment. And so you are accountable to God, and you will be called to account one day, and that is where the fear of the Lord must begin. He made you. You are His. But not only does the fear of the Lord begin with this, this understanding of, of accountability to the judge, but it also includes an acknowledgement that, that we can't answer. That we are sinful and and justly condemned. As I said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are justly condemned. None are perfect. None have actually even come close. I used to hear that language of none is perfect and think, well, you know, God demands 100 and and I got a 97. Ah, just came short. No. That's not the image that, that Scripture portrays. Scripture portrays a person who got a 17. Or maybe a 7. We we fall woefully short. We have sinned grievously. In God's common grace, he has restrained our sinfulness. We are not as bad as we could be. And therefore, sometimes we can deceive even ourselves and think that we're really not that bad after all. But you know your own heart. You know the ways that you respond to to the pressures and to the, the, the stresses of this life. You know how you respond to slights. You know how you respond 
when some of those restraints are, are pulled back. And, and in those moments when, when uh, the evil in our heart comes out, we want to say, well, that wasn't really us. That wasn't really me. That's not really who I am. You know, I know I did that. I know I said that, but that wasn't really me. Yes, it was. <laughs> that's what's in your heart. That's, that's who you are. Apart from God's common grace, that's who you would be all the time. You are a sinner. And in your self-absorption, in your self-concern, in your selfish ambition, you will harm whomever you need to harm to advance your own interests. It's the reality of what it is to be fallen in Adam. So much so that, that if God led us into his heaven, it wouldn't be heaven very long. If God let people like us in, then heaven would become just like this earth. Because this earth and the the trials and the tribulations that we experience here are the result of our sinfulness. And so we must acknowledge not only that God is our judge, but that we cannot withstand his judgment. We are sinners justly condemned. But of course this brings us to the third component of a proper fear. Because proper fear doesn't stop with our sinfulness. Proper fear goes on to hear. To hear the voice of the Lord who so loved the world that he gave his only son. You see, the third component of proper fear is the acknowledgement that our only hope is in the mercy of God who gave his son that sinners might be saved. Psalm 2 displays this wonderfully. Psalm 2 warns that the the son's wrath is quickly kindled. What do you do when you face someone whose wrath is quickly kindled? In our human foolishness, our instinct is to flee. It's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. They went and they hid themselves as if that were going to help. But you can't hide from God. And you certainly can't talk him out of justice. What then can you do? But what do we read at the end of Psalm 2? Blessed are those who take refuge in him. His wrath is quickly kindled. Therefore flee to him because he is your only hope. That is the gospel. The God against whom we have sinned has loved us and has opened the way for us to come home. He has ransomed us, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of his Son, Jesus Christ. That is the heart of the gospel. And so a proper fear, yes, it acknowledges that God is the judge. Yes, it acknowledges that we are justly condemned. And then it rejoices to know that he has made a way for us to be forgiven. He has made a way for us to be reconciled. He has made a way for us to inherit the coming kingdom of God. That is the fear that Luke is calling you to this morning. That is the fear that he he wants to elicit in your heart. It is a fear that acknowledges God as judge, ourselves as sinner, and Jesus as our hope. That is what the story of Ananias and Sapphira ought to bring forth in our hearts. And because the fear that Luke is eliciting drives us to Christ and not from him. That is one reason we call this good news. Even a story like this is good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you have opened the way for us to come home. 
Father, we are sinners justly condemned. The fate of Ananias and Sapphira is rightly our fate. For we too have pretended, we too have, have feigned devotion, even as we were going after other things. But Father, you have loved the world, and you have made a way for sinners like us to be reconciled. Give us the grace to believe it. Give us the grace to rest in it. And give us the grace to bring forth its fruit in our lives to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.